Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founded, Ed Condon. Hey, Ed. Hi, J.D. Uh, how you doing, man? Um, well, <clears throat> I'm, I'm angry, J.D. I, I feel betrayed. I feel let down. I feel like... Um, one of the things, one of the few beacons of beauty and stability in my world has been rocked. I feel like we live in an age where all that is true and beautiful is being debased before our very eyes. I just can't believe, I can't, I can't believe that you're angry. Um, I'm sure you're going to tell me why, but I just want to set the scene here. <clears throat> this is, we're recording this episode on Friday morning. Which means we're recording this episode on a Friday in Lent in which I, the solemnity of the Annunciation, a solemnity trumps and supersedes nearly all things in the liturgical and penitential calendar of the church, which is to say that I, uh, I don't know about you, but I had an omelet and some minute steaks for breakfast this morning. This, for me, was a fine thing, but for you, um, a meat Friday is one of those pinnacle days that I thought sort of held up your entire year. So to hear that you're angry on a day it's, when the church not only permits but encourages you to eat meat, I, I can't say it comes as a great surprise to hear that you're angry, but the, it is, the, the context is somewhat astonishing because this seems like a day that should be a day of great celebration for you. I agree with you. There's much to celebrate today in the life of the church, in the liturgical calendar, in the mysteries of salvation. There is, there is much to unpack and to delight in, but the reality is Omega watches... Oh, you're angry about some watch thing? Completely debased themselves. <clears throat> I'm absolutely angry about some watch thing. It is. It, it has. It. It is. It has ruined my morning. It ruined my yesterday, and it ruined my Wednesday night. I am. I'm. I'm what did the What did the watch? I'm grasping here. What did the watch? I'm grasping for joy do? here, JD. I'm trying to. It. They. They launched a plastic quartz version of the Speedmaster, which is the watch that. They wore on the moon oh, okay. so they with Apollo 11. It's the watch that product. Jim Lovell used to time the rocket thrusts of Apollo 13 getting back home. That like the iconic so space watch. Because this corporation commercialized and, their corporate their their commercial product, and you feel yeah. like instead of them existing for the thing for which they exist, which is like to make money with a broad consumer base, they should exist for the thing which you would like them to exist for which is being a niche product which you probably yourself don't even own or purchase but admire as a symbol of sort of no, status. Of, status of of human engineering of aesthetic uh -huh. beauty of uh -huh. of the fusion between form and function but you're correct that i don't yeah own you don't own the thing master and i can't, can't afford, afford one the thing. nevertheless the effort to make the thing or some iteration of the thing available to the masses bothers you because ultimately it's the masses that bother you isn't it? jd this is like if ferrari came out and said hey everyone loves the Enzo, this beautiful supercar that we have. So what Ferrari we're going to do is we're going to make... Ed, to Power Wheels. Ferrari licenses itself to everything under the planet. No, but this is... they, they But like as toys and imitations and things and like as whatever, but they don't actually debase the core product. Like this would be like Ferrari saying we're going to take our prize supercar and we're going to co-brand it with Fiat and we're going to have faux leather seats and a plastic instead of carbon fiber body and we're going to put the the engine of a Fiat Punto in it, and we're going to call it and a Ferrari. And I'll tell you something I mean, that is very, very difficult for you to accept. It's surprising to me that it's difficult for you to accept this, given I know your own, you know, your, your own understanding as a small business owner yourself, your own understanding of these things. Um, 
it is surprising to me that this company's that you know the fact that they would sell more cars uh you know comes as a disappointment to you because they exist they exist to sell cars no but this is the point is it's bad marketing this is this is what annoys me most about it is it's a terrible idea like they will sell a bunch of these cheap watches which they they've launched through swatch and, you know, fine, they'll make a quick buck on that. But they're debasing their core product. It's bad business strategy, J.D. It's poor marketing. It's And it, it bothers I, you that the fellas down at Omega are bad at business. I, I just don't know why they would do this. <laughs> can I have one nice well, thing? We don't actually like? have it, though. No, I mean, I don't physically. I mean, can I have, like, one hobby? <laughs> like, baseball be, is a dumpster fire. one nice of, thing that you aspire to? Exactly. Like, can't we just have one nice thing? Like, we, baseball is gone as a as a sport. You know, the, and now and now, the, and now Omega. I, mean, I wonder if I this feel is a like lesson for you. I wonder if this is a lesson in detachment from stupid material be. possessions. Well, I don't know that you can call them stupid material possessions seeing as they don't actually possess one. But um, <laughs> stupid. You're right. I wonder if this is a lesson in detachment merely from stupid material aspirations. Yeah, maybe. I, I, I can only assume this is a call to repent in sackcloth and ashes and remind myself that all of this world is passing Well, how much away. does the new Omega cost? You mean this ridiculous toy swatch yeah. that they're coming out with? 260 bucks or oh, something. Oh, man. That's still, I don't know if you know this, but that's still a lot of money for a watch. Like, I... You, you won't, you couldn't buy one. No, I, if you're thinking you would like to buy me one as I, a joke, I, you can't. When I like, thought it would be... already trading on when eBay I thought it for would be 10 $40, times their retail I th- thought that I would buy you one. Not as a joke. Actually, I didn't think that I would buy you one. I knew exactly the way that I would get in your head, which is to say that if they were $40, that's the max I would spend on something like this. I'd buy one for your dad, have it engraved in the back, um, you know... Uh, can you engrave plastic? <laughs> you can. I suppose they probably call it laser etching or something like that. But have it etched in the back with a little with a little message and then give it to him because it would drive you nuts to see it on his wrist. And he'd wear it just for that purpose. Oh, that would be calling. <laughs> but for $240, I obviously am not going to do that. You won't get it for that. They're trading it over $2,000 on eBay already, and they've only been out oh, for so, a week or for a day. Oh, excuse so me. this company created like a ton of buzz around this product by sort of um, releasing it with false scarcity. Yeah, yeah. it sounds and like... And it is false scarcity. It's not a limited run. Right. Like, it's people are just... It sounds but, like a bit but bad, again, bad business like if they were making, right? Obviously, if they're they were, not <clears throat> engaging with a You can get base. a second-hand Speedmaster. I mean, okay, the reduced one, not the Moonwatch, but you can get a real Speedmaster for $2,500 if you go on Chrono 24 or something. And the, people are paying... The amount that you would pay for the real thing to buy this crappy McDonald's so toy. So the market actually an, values this thing. But this is the gray market. It's not like they're making this money off it. That's my point. They've sold their soul and they're not even seeing the return. Well, I think they are I think they may be pleased with what's happening. But anyway, we have more to talk about today than this thing. I, I can't even, I don't even, I never even en- allowed to enter into my mind what it was called. The Omega Seamaster or Moon, Moon Master Master. or whatever. Um, no, there there is a there is a Seamaster that is a dive watch. The Speedmaster is, is just, actually I'm originally just, a, a motorsports timing chronograph, you know but they you. used it, it for the NASA called. mission. Um, listen, we have a lot to talk about today that is not the Omega Speedmaster, and uh, and uh, because today Ed is in addition to the Annunciation, today's a very it's a historic day in the life of the church, is it not? No, a, a, apart from. The state of the watch world today is actually a very significant day and a very beautiful day and a day full of mystery and power. Because it's consecration day. It is consecration day. I mean, again, technically, but... 
Oh, because we yeah, did it's it in 1985. Again. Yeah, to be sure. Um, uh, but today, the Pope will, um, um, as an as an act of um, uh, entrustment to the Blessed Virgin Mary, we're recording this on Friday before the the consecration of Russia and Ukraine uh, to. Um, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, but that is what the Pope will do today in, in union with bishops all around the world. will make an act of entrustment and um, consecration of Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And um, and that's, that is, uh, there's a whole historical context to that, but just on its face, so to speak, um, that's a really very cool thing. I mean, it's a, it's a cool, to my mind, a moment of, of sort of spiritual unity and um, uh, and authenticity in the life of the church. It, it's I, I I find it extremely powerful because the expression of communion in the church um, at an ecclesiological level is the communion of the College right. of Bishops, headed by the Pope, and so that we are going to. I mean, you have okay in the liturgical life of the church, you have the priests and the bishops of the church are are all saying the same liturgy, quote-unquote, at the same time. But, you know, the time of a particular Mass will vary with time zones to other people and stuff. But, you know, to have a moment where it's like, no, literally at the exact same moment, all of the these bishops across the world are going to be doing the same thing in communion with the Pope, and all of the faithful will be watching. And you know, it, is, it, it, it is an incredibly powerful thing. And to have this moment of unified prayer um being offered to to god and to our lady um for what is happening in ukraine i think is it's wonderful it, it it's um you know what it, it kind of reminds me of is do you remember the eucharistic benediction that the pope gave during the pandemic I do because i wrote about the 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 um the way in which the one is evocative of the other in my newsletter on tuesday you did, yes. That's, that's why I was gently asking you. know what you. it reminds me of is a thing. Uh, do you remember this thing which you said it reminded you of uh, just three days ago? Oh, boy. And I hadn't hadn't thought about that association, but now that you mention it. So tell me again. Yes. Tell me tell me what it reminds you of, and I'll see if I can if I can look back in the old memory hole and, and remember it. F- follow me along yeah, if you if can. Yeah, I can keep up. <laughs> no, but it, in the same way that that we'll moment We'll talk about had, that moment for those who, who may not. Well, so the Pope gave this special Eucharistic benediction, um, Orbi et Orbi, to the city and to the world. Um, just a little during bit into the, the pandemic, uh, just a couple of months into the pandemic. Just, but I mean, well into Italy's mm-hmm. lockdown, like, and and it was a really rainy night, and obviously St. Peter's Square was completely empty because of the lockdown and everything, and it had this wonderful um, uh, aesthetic encapsulation along with the with the power the spiritual power of what was being done which was the pope you know sort of with these images of him alone in saint peter's square blessing the city and the world at a time when people were locked down isolated felt very much alone that it had this sort of um, wonderful gathering together of the reality that so many people were going through and injecting into it the the blessing of the church, the saving power of Christ, which was so powerful. I mean, it became, you know, a meme basically for the whole yeah. world. I mean, mm-hmm. this wasn't something that was big news in Catholic world. Like it's still one of the defining images of the pandemic. The period. Pandemic. I think that's right. And I think this could end up producing, and I mean, we'll watch it the same as everyone else. Um, but I think this could end up producing a similar image of, or even, you know, a cascade of images because it's happening everywhere. So in the same way that the sort of the, I, the, the iconic nature of, 
the Pope's image in that liturgy was very much, you know, alone in the dark, in the rain, where everyone else was feeling very isolated and alone. This one, I think, will be very different, that there will be, I presume, crowds, that there will be crowds all over the world, that it will be very much a coming together of this visible group of people in prayer about this global intention of what is happening in Ukraine. Uh-huh, that's right. right. And I, I think that could be incredibly powerful. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think that's right. Now, Ed, what is the, I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about the history. You mentioned before you alluded to it, you said, um, you know, again, we're consecrating again. What is the history of this moment that uh, that is happening? I think probably most of our listeners probably know, but some may not. So let's talk for a minute about the history of the thing. Uh, okay, well, so one of the, the so-called secrets of Fatima revealed to the the children there um was apparently the the warning of a coming war which with the benefit of hindsight begins to look a little bit like world war ii and the possibility of ending the war that was then in train which was world war one and all of these things and sort of linked up to this was the idea that um russia needed to be consecrated to the immaculate heart of mary that the if the pope did this in jointly with all of the bishops of the world and if there were um, acts of reparation on the first Saturdays of the month, that Russia would be converted and the world would know peace. Um, and there have been various consecrations um, by different popes The most since then, the most recent of which was um, John Paul II in 1985. Was it? Was it 85 or 84? I 84. think it was 85. 84. 84. He finished, what I think um, it is, is <clears throat> he finished with uh, the code, you know, which the Pope promulgated in 1983. And having finished with that big project, he... he he thought it would be the right time, kind of in Thanksgiving for that auspicious moment in the life of the church. Uh, he thought it might be the right time for this other thing. Right. And he, he also um, he also offered this consecration of the entire world to the Immaculate Well, he principally heart. offered this consecration of the entire world to the Immaculate Heart because of the, um, because of the political situation at the time and sort of the, the Vatican approach to engagement with the, with the, with the countries in the, of the Warsaw Pact behind the Iron Curtain at the time. There was like a sort of... Uh, the Holy Father got a lot of advice not to mention Russia from the diplomats of the Holy See and the uh, the ecumenists of the Holy See. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. And so he made an act of consecration of the entire world to the Immaculate Heart. And then um, sort of sotto voce mentioned Russia um, in, in forma specifica. Yes. Um, and this was this was also the 25th of March mm-hmm. That's right. uh, in 84. That's right. and, so, and, um, and, and now we're... We're doing it again, and there is this. Uh, there's going to be this explicit declaration of it being primarily for Russia and the Ukraine. Sorry, Ukraine, in um, in in the text of the prayer, and I, I think it's it's wonderful. And you know, you mentioned and you actually wrote about this morning um, or late last night. I don't know. It was a Thursday night. This is the problem. As I'm always a little jet lagged on Friday mornings because put out your newsletter on Friday. I I published. Well, yeah, but you also tend to work through the I night. I do, on night. Um, but I published an analysis on the on on sort of the ecumenical dimension of the Pope's act of consecration. Um, I published it late last night, my time, and the reason is because I wanted to publish it sort of in the Ro- as close to the Roman morning as possible. And um, and actually, we have an increasing number of readers in Eastern Europe, um, in, in Ukraine itself, and um, in Poland and uh, and Slovakia, and 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 we have been sort of blessed, I think, to be covering um, the Church in Eastern Europe uh, a lot more concretely than we had been for a long time because of our Ukrainian correspondent Anatoly Babimsky, and just because of everything that's going on. And so, I sort of wanted to get it out when our um, when our Eastern European readers would get it. So I did publish last night a kind of analysis of the ecumenical sort of dimension of the Pope's, uh, the Pope's consecration. 
And, uh, and I think that ecumenical dimension is kind of what we want to talk about today. Yeah, I mean, and it is a, it is a fascinating chessboard, if you like, that is, that is in flux. Because um, obviously there will be, I don't know what, and I don't know that it will ever be possible to sort of um, point your finger to specific spiritual benefits that will come from this consecration, although they, they will be real. I have no doubt in my mind about that, that it's not possible for the Pope in communion with the bishops of the world and communion with the faithful of the world to offer this united prayer and for there not to be true spiritual graces as a result. Um, but those those can be difficult to enumerate in, in and, a concrete And that actually way. is worth and talking about for a moment, too, you know, because, <clears throat> okay, so Our Lady of Fatima appears in Fatima in 1917 and um, urges that um, Russia be consecrated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary along with people um, receiving communion on first Saturdays and says that, that if the Pope consecrates Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary along with um, uh, along with the bishops around the world, that there might be this period or would be this period of peace uh, that, would, that would follow the consecration. And so John Paul does this in 1984, and one of the visionaries of Fatima, Sister Lucia, one of the people who was a kid who saw the Blessed Virgin Mary and who received these messages and these kinds of things said, um, yeah, I think that fits the bill. At that time she said that I think that was what the Blessed Mother wanted and it would seem that she would be the one who would know having received the message in the first place. And the whole, the church said, we consider this to be an act of um, response to what the Blessed Mother asked for at Fatima and these kinds of things. Um, but there have, there are a lot of people, or, well, there are some people who, who, um, who have long sort of been skeptical that the church or the Holy or John Paul II actually consecrated Russia to um, uh, to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Not not again. Not a lot of people, but among people who are like very much sort of into Fatima and also very much into kind of like um, I, you can say conspiracy theories. theories. Yeah. I think that's also fair. Also, people who are very much into conspiracy theories. There has long been this theory, despite what the church has said and what Sister Lucia has said, that John Paul II didn't do it sort of right, as it were, by not mentioning. Uh, Russia by name, and therefore, kind of, it didn't sort of take, as it were, and um, and they say, well, evidence of that is the fact that there's no period of peace. Um, now, I think there are some people who would say, well, that's funny because actually, you know, um, you did see the Iron Curtain fall, and you know, many many people begin to sort of live in a in a greater peace and greater sort of religious freedom in for in, in that part of in, you know in 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 the Warsaw Pact countries and these kinds of things. So, um, you know, the, there are people who would debate sort of whether there was a period of peace or not. But um, but I do think, look, uh, uh, the apparitions of Fatima are the kind of thing in which a Catholic can believe or not believe. No one is obliged to believe them. Um, I'm inclined to believe that Our Lady appeared to Fatima, and I'm inclined to believe that the visionaries receive these messages and, um, you know, that there is that the Church has been asked in a certain way to uh, to consecrate uh, Russia to um, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, um, but I think sort of like the this idea about like looking for a sign and which has I think become popular and 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 led to a lot of this naysaying of like looking for a sign of well obviously this didn't sort of work quote unquote because there was no effect of it, um, it runs counter to just our experience with sacraments sacramentals and devotional and sort of acts of devotion. In the, in the in the economy of salvation, um, because we trust that sacraments, which are you know actual real sort of occasions of grace, which are manif- which are actual and real occasions of grace manifested by um, the actions of the minister of the sacrament, we trust that that happens even if we don't see a sort of visible um, 
manifestation of that and 99.999% of the time we don't see a visible manifestation of that. And we trust that the rosary is efficacious in our lives, even though we don't say like, well, I prayed the rosary and then for the next 15 minutes, my kids didn't fight. I mean, you know, or something like that. We trust that the rosary is nonetheless efficacious in our lives. But for some reason, this um, this Fatima apparition and this notion of entrusting Russia to the Blessed Virgin Mary has led to this kind of like expectation, I think, which is uh, co- runs contrary to our ordinary approach to the economy of salvation, that if we don't, if for some people that if there was not some obviously identifiable, tangible consequence of the thing, then it, it didn't happen. And that's just, it's just an odd, an odd kind of element of all of this that I think has to be avoided, right? I mean, you can't, it, it you can't is, and it's a weird kind it. of, <clears throat> it's bound up with a weird kind of 20th century apocalyptic mentality, which is, I mean, the 20th century was, if you like, uh, the, the century which broke history, um, through, through the first world war, which was sort of the end of, um, the European empires and, and the era of sort of a, a Eurocentric world order. Um, and then the second world war, which sort of brought in the modern era and, and also visited the horrors of the Holocaust on the world and, and things like that. So there is, there, there was, um, and I mean, this is why we got the second Vatican council is there was a resign, a recognition that sort of the first half of the 20th century was a particular time of trauma for humanity and i think one of the one of the sort of side offshoots of that has been this kind of um niche apocalyptic mentality coming out of those horrors that the world must be ending there must be some sort of climactic crescendo that that this is either was or is teeing up or something like that um and and for that reason, you know, the mention of Russia in in the in the Fatima revelations and things sort of plays into that. I mean, for myself, I find it incredibly narcissistic and weird that people have um, deeply strongly held views that they're prepared to articulate quite so stridently. Um, you know, you say that no one is obliged to believe in the in the apparitions of Fatima, uh, and this is true because it is a private revelation. That is the definition of, that the Church gives to it is a private revelation, and um, I I do not doubt that the the apparitions of Our Lady at Fatima occurred. I do not doubt that she said to the children things that she is said to have said to the children. Um, but I also believe it to be a private revelation. And um, far be it from me to question or doubt or openly contradict um, the the interlocutors of Our Lady from that occasion and to say i know better what was said between you and our lady in what was a private conversation or to impose upon um, it a kind of formulism a kind of uh, a kind of rig- rigoristic form formulism that says well um the our, our lady asked the church to pray for a particular thing but um we will reduce that into a kind of um magical incantation by saying that it must be done according to a particular formula which we ourselves have effectively you know devised um, and yes. that Our Lady won't sort of honor the prayers of the um, of the Vicar of Christ and the bishops of the world unless they uh, conform to a formula which we have adjudged to be necessary. I mean, in, in a, uh, for the efficacious celebration of a sacrament, the Church, the the Church, in the authority of the Church, the governing and teaching authority of the Church, has determined certain elements which are sort of necessary for the efficacious administration of the sacrament. By virtue of her authority, the Church has done so. Um, it would be 
it, it would be insane, and everyone knows it would be insane if I started saying, "Well, actually, um, baptism isn't valid unless um, unless you pour uh, unless you pour in a in a counterclockwise motion with the left hand." over the one to be baptized. It's, it's otherwise not valid. I mean, everyone knows it would be insane, not just because that's a sort of weird thing, but because I don't have any authority to make this judgment whatsoever. Um, I am not entrusted with the charism of, of, uh, of that kind of discernment, which is the very sort of nature of the magisterial munor of the church's hierarchical constitution. So to sort of impose on the church's hierarchical constitution um, an obligation for um, sort of validity, so to speak, of a non-sacramental action and effectively sort of devotional entreaty to the Lord um, um, in, in, uh, is, uh, is, is the height of, to my mind, um, a, 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 a backwards uh, uh, theology well, it, of grace. It, it's, it's a kind of DIY Gnosticism, J.D., <laughs> okay. is what it is. Um, that's what this is. It's, you know, that there's, there, it's, it's, I mean... There is a sort of dark spiritual appeal of the idea of well, there's there's there are hidden, hidden things. The very notion there are hidden that things. the things were called secrets. So the the, the things which our lady said were called secrets. That's why I said so yeah, called the secrets. Which our lady called, said were were you know called secrets were were called that because they weren't sort of immediately manifested by the children at the direction I, I believe of the authorities and you know of the why? church. Because it was private. Because it was private. Because the church needed to make a judgment about it. Uh, because the church wanted to sort of like in her own. Uh, judgment and by her own authority sort of make a discernment about this and the advisability of this and these kinds of things, which is the prerogative and and and, and obligation of the church. Um, but once that word secret got attached to it, I think once that word secret got attached to Fatima, then for a lot of people, it, it entered into the realm of, yeah, this Gnostic, apocalyptic, hooky-booky, as it were. And it's unfortunate yes. because what Our Lady is asking <clears throat> for, entrust this this place and these people to me, is is both simple and beautiful. And um, yes. and yet it can be um, made into something complex, onerous, and, um, and and surrounded by fear. And um, and who's the father well, of fear? And it's and also who's just the father of fear. Well, the yes, devil's the, devil the father of fear, fear. Judy. But it's also just. I mean, yeah, it's. I find it emotionally repulsive. Um, and let me give. So you've given an example of you know it would be like you trying to say baptism is only valid if you pour the water with your left hand moving at Wittishens around the one to be baptized. Um, yes, it, it's like that. But it's also like if you're in the supermarket and you see a mother talking to her three children and asking them to do something and the children saying, yeah, we'll do that. And then you butt into the conversation and, and say, way. no, what your mother, right. what your mother really wants is like, you would look at that person like they're a lunatic. I, butt out people. It's none of your business. Did Our Lady appear to you? No. Then shut up. That's a great you know, point. You, That's a... If Our Lady has a message that, you know, you that she wants to entrust to you, she'll appear to you. Otherwise, go back to your basement. I, you know, forget about it. I, these people drive me crazy, J.D. Well, they don't drive me crazy yet, and I'll tell you why. I, <laughs> this, is where we, I th- this is where we will part company. I have a lot of empathy for them um, because um, the experience of scrupulosity that I think comes for some people with things like Fatima... Um, uh, what what does it point to? What does this desire to make sure that it's done correctly point to? This desire to see a sign come from it comes from a de, uh, it comes from a fundamental like first of all a trust in the thing. There is a level of trust in the thing um, that you know this has happened and we can have confidence that and we can and we can believe this right. So there's a level of belief and then there's a great deal of anxiety that it might not happen or that you know. 
Um, it, we can't we can't know that it happens, and we'll have this insecurity. And at the heart of that, I think in part is an anxiety about whether or not we can know that God loves us. And so I have no, no. a great deal of empathy okay, sorry, for people who who get sort of so wrapped up into these things because if you have the confidence of it is a grace to have the confidence of knowing that God loves you, knowing that you can trust in God's promises, knowing that you have been um, uh, redeemed in the waters of baptism, even when you can't see it or feel it or experience. It's only a grace. And um, the anxiety that comes from a certain kind of spiritual scrupulosity, whether about the efficacy of your confession or the efficacy of the priest's um, confection of the Eucharist or the efficacy of the Pope's consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I think somewhere in there is a, is is an anxiety about the love of God and confidence in the love of God. And I have a great deal of empathy for someone who would experience that. Now, well, I suffer I, from I the opposite problem, with... which is that I'm often presumptuous about the love of God to the point of sinning wantedly at and freely with reckless abandon and practically no remorse. Um, but that's a different problem we can talk about on a different show. Or maybe I should just talk about it in confession. Possibly. Um, if... If you are correctly diagnosing this mentality, then fine. I can have a lot of sympathy with that because the, to be plagued by the doubt of, related to the love of God is a is a real spiritual suffering. It is you know it is the the the, the germinating seed of the dark night of the soul, even for the most faithful saint. Can now, I just really quickly um, say one other thing? Because otherwise, we're going to get a lot of mail. Um, I okay. talked about a spiritual dimension of scrupulosity. There is also a psychological dimension of scrupulosity. Um, which should not be discounted. I, I'm just saying this because we're going to get a lot of mail in because it's also true. There's also a psychological, de- you know, element of scrupulosity, which is not, uh, you, you know, which also merits um, empathy, but um, which which comes from, you know, a person's sort of psychological makeup, composition, experience, et cetera, et cetera. And that also should be taken into account with regard to scrupulosity. Just saying it before I get a lot of mail about it. Go. Okay. Moving away from the general topic of scrupulosity, though, and talking specifically about sort of Fatima truthers, um, what I see most often in it is not a doubt in or an anxiety in the love of God, but a doubt in the church, a doubt in the efficacy and authority and reality of the church. And I have very little patience for that at, at the level of things like this, because if you believe in the articles of the creed effectively, if you profess the divine and Catholic faith, and yet you have a deep-seated suspicion and hostility to the joyful announcement of the church that, yes, Our Lady has appeared and delivered a message, and we have acted on it. And if your response to that is one of skepticism, then I, then I, there's, there's such a, a fault in that logical train of thought that I, I find myself very, very unsettled by it. Because what you're basically saying is, I believe everything... Um, related to the faith of the church, which is only present in the world and I only know about and has only been handed on and announced because of the church. And yet I doubt and distrust and reject the um, what the church says about this thing. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's I, I think what is at the heart of it very often is it's just a suspicion of the hierarchy of the church. It's it's a kind of um, there is there can be is, a kind of anti clericalism and anti clericalist uh, a hermeneutic of distrust with regard to the hierarchy of the church, which is fomented and fostered by you know charlatans in every era who want you to believe that you can't trust in the hierarchy of the church about anything, but you can trust in them and them alone. Right? I mean that this is the kind of thing that is used by such charlatans in order to 
divide people from ecclesial communion to be sure. I, I would bet in many, many cases, if not the majority of cases, you can't fit, fit a cigarette paper between the people who don't believe that JP2's consecration in 1984 was um, efficacious or satisfactory and the people who believe that basically the Vatican is overrun by Freemasons <laughs> and the church has been, uh, you know, in a sort of Babylonian captivity since um the Vatican, since Vatican II. Now, here's something weird that I think some people would say as we talk about this is uh, sometimes, you know, I sort of, um, uh, when when I get, when someone sort of tells me that the church is overrun by Freemasons or that we're in a Babylon captivity or that the true church is not um, coincidental with the hierarchical church. And by the way, if you hold the belief that the true church is not sort of coexistent with the hierarchical church in communion with her, you, you're you're in a bit of trouble because there is one true church and it is... Um, it is the expression of uh, of the uh, of communion, hierarchical, sacramental, and, and doctrinal communion with um, with uh, um, the Roman Pontiff and the bishops in communion with him. So there is it's just, donatism. Right, it is, yes. The people who made that argument first were the people who rejected Saint Augustine. Bingo. Yes. So um, uh, where, shoot, why did I say that? Oh yeah. So um, you know, people often say to me that the, that they or, or sometimes say to me, it seems like there's a weird dichotomy with you and Ed because. You, on the one hand, spend a great deal of time reporting on um, the insufficiencies and um, at times even moral depravity of various figures in the hierarchical constitution of the church. And at the same time, are sort of emphatic in your commitment to that, to, to the hierarchical constitution of the church as an institution, which is like um, communion with which is essential to your salvation. And that seems to be disconsonant. For me, it doesn't seem disconsonant at all, but I, I hear that kind of thing. Like, how can oh, you guys I, I don't, do all this I don't reporting? find it disconsonant at all. I consider that to be the only Betu. rational engagement. Yeah, like, all, you guys do all this reporting about Betu, and then you say how important it is to trust the authority of the church. And for me, it's like, yes, exactly, which is why um, a person – I'm not – Betu has not been convicted of anything, but which is why a person who, who you know, could be convicted of the crimes Betu is accused of has no place in the hierarchical constitution of the church because um, the mission of the church and the divine sort of – but its existence by divine or the, the the existence by divine ordinance of the Catholic Church and its hierarchical constitution is so important and so meaningful um, that those who are called uh, to any role in the life of the church, but especially those you know which exercise spiritual authority, must be committed to um, holiness and the salvation of souls. And so it's because of that thing and a belief in that thing that that I like to do the thing that we like to do. But I think it's interesting to me because sometimes people are like. Well, how can you possibly believe in all this when you spend all that time doing all that bank stuff? Well, how can you not? <laughs> exactly. I mean, and it's not just like, well, I, we're, the Holy Spirit must be here because we're screwing it up. It's it's deeper than that. Well, it's de- it's the scandal of Gethsemane. I mean, if you don't understand that the the first act of unanimous communion between the disciples was that they all ran away. I mean that that's how the church has always worked. That you know, it is an institution both human and divine, and the servants of it are imperfect, but nevertheless, the institution itself enjoys God's favor and promise that it is the mechanism by which salvation will be delivered to the world. Like I, I, I'm always mystified um, when people think that there is, you know, it's impossible to both take a take a, a lovingly frank look at the the problems and deficiencies in the in the human life of the church, and at the same time to affirm completely her her divine missionary mandate and the saving power of the sacraments conveyed through her and the insistence on the need to maintain communion with the church and the hierarchy. Um, I mean, this is, this has been the, the 
if you like, the tension of the church's dual nature right. since day one. I mean, and, and what we're talking th- about effectively is, is the doctrine of the church's indefectibility, or maybe it's actually dogmatically defined that the, the the dogma of the church's indefectibility, which is to say that the church will always be the conduit of um, sanctifying grace in the world. The church um, is that by divine ordinance, um, and also by divine ordinance, a moral person. For those of you who are playing. Uh, canon law references uh, at home, um, the, the, but the church by divine ordinance is the conduit of salvation, and, and as you say, there's a tension between that and um, those who, who who lead her or those who participate in her life being um, uh, plagued by sinfulness, and yet the whole thing presupposes the sinfulness of us all, because um, were we not sinners, we would have uh, no incarnation, and were we, well, I, I'm sure yeah, some theologian is going to pick on this, but pick on that but let me say it a different way but um i don't think we have theologians listening to <laughs> at least this podcast. Anymore. but um but because but after a feeling after a happy fall uh which merited us for the incarnation i know i can say that and get away with it after a happy fall which which, which uh, merited for us the incarnation of christ um we have we have the church to mediate salvation and the redemption of the incarnation and uh and so um but but the, the that mediation is predicated on the sinfulness which sometimes becomes a source of scandal yeah. Okay. Let's talk, Ed, about um, the ec- We were going to talk twenty minutes ago. We wanted to talk about a Q. We did, and I want to, but I actually, I think this, I think that was, um, I think that was a worthwhile diversion. Do you not? I enjoyed it. And, and what are we here for, JD, if not to enjoy ourselves? <laughs> and of course, to edify, uh, to edify, entertain, inform, and inspire um, our listeners, uh, uh, who are, of course, um, an intelligent bunch. And I hope that each of you listeners is um, edified, informed, entertained, and inspired by the Pillar Podcast. And if you are, of course, uh, PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe is the place where you can subscribe to the Pillar and, and support the ongoing edification, inspiration, informing, and um, the other thing. Uh, whenever you like, PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe. For the great taste that won't fill you up and never let you down, make it a Pillar. Okay, Ed, we'd like to talk uh, now about uh, the ecumenical dimensions of the Pope's consecration of Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Would we not? Yes. Yes, we would. Because it's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. Um, and when we say the ecumenical uh, implications of the thing, what we're mostly talking about is the way in which this impacts the Church's um, erstwhile relationship with the Russian Orthodox Church and um, and what the that impact might mean. So, for the past... One hallmark of of the Francis Pontificate is that the Pope has made a real effort to uh, to engage fraternally with the patriarchs of the Orthodox uh, of the Orthodox Church. Uh, would you not say that so that the churches churches? Yeah, thank you. The Orthodox Communion is what I wanted to say, but I wasn't sure if that was technically correct. But with the churches of the Orthodox sphere, the uh, the Holy Father has made uh, real overtures of engagement. So, for example. He has, like, I think met with um, the, the Patriarch of Constantinople a bunch of times, and uh, he gave him, what he gave Bartholomew the one, um, some kind of a thing. Who, Bartholomew the first. Relics of St. Andrew, yeah, yeah. I believe. I think that's right. Yeah, he gave Bartholomew the first, the Patriarch of Constantinople, some relics of St. Andrew, which are appropriate to the See of Constantinople, and, and it was a... Previously kept in the private altar of the Pope's right. residency. Yeah, that's right. So it was a big gift. Um, which he go. gave as a kind of fraternal sign of the hope for unity between the uh, between the Orthodox and the uh, and, and and the Catholic Communion. So he he's done that. He's had some other overtures with the Orthodox, and then he has been. Uh, I think it's fair to say pursuing 
um, in a better ecumenical relationship with the Patriarch of Moscow, Patriarch Kirill I. Everybody's the first right now. Bartholomew, Francesco, Kirill. It's a big time for firsts. Um, Francis. Yeah, I, I said Francesco. Um, I gave him the Italian name there. Okay, so... Um, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, the Pope met with Kirill in 2016 at a, in a sort of holding room at the Havana airport because the Pope was going to South America. I, I don't even remember where Kirill was going. Was it like they both had connections in Havana? Is that how that happened? Or what was the deal? You're setting me up for a KGB Castro oh, well, joke no, actually here. Actually, I was setting and... you up for an our man in Havana joke. Yes, Kirill has business in <laughs> Cuba, J.D. Read, they uh, always do. Graham Greene's a really hilarious novel about uh, an English spy, our, our man, man in Havana. Havana. I, yes, absolutely. A I love good time, Green. is it not? It is yeah. wonderful. Okay. And if you if you can't stick the book, Alec Guinness, of course, gave the definitive there's performance. A mo- there's an Arman in Havana movie? Oh, yeah. And it's got Alec Guinness, like, photographing the the vacuum cleaner. Really? <laughs> Great. Yeah. Alec Guinness from Lawrence of Arabia is another stuff, too? That's not funny. <laughs> you see, I don't... I feign not to recognize a... A five-minute walk-on <laughs> character from a 90s B-movie, and you lose your ever-loving mind, and yet here you are throwing shade at Alec No, he Guinness. was Faisal. He was Faisal. That, that, is not that is not who people think of when they think of Lawrence of Arabia, as well, well you know. When people think of Lawrence of Arabia, they think of Peter O'Toole, but I'm just saying, when I think of Alec Guinness, I think of, I think of, uh, of Prince Faisal, don't you? No. Oh, well. I think of George Smiley. I don't know what that is. Tinker Taylor. Right. <laughs> oh. oh, you know, oh. Alec Guinness also, I kind of forgot about this. Alec Guinness also played. Kind Hearts and Coronets is actually his best performance. But, uh, but, he uh, also played, and this is where the kids are going to know him, he also played Obi-Wan uh, Kenobi. I had forgotten about that. I don't believe you forgot about I that. I honestly did. I don't, I don't believe you. <laughs> okay. Uh,. The Pope met with Kirill in 2016 at the Havana airport. The Pope was going to South America. I can't remember where Kirill was going, or maybe he just agreed to meet the Pope there. Um, and uh, the Pope had a layover. And so they met in a sort of a special holding room. And it was a historic meeting because it was the first time in hundreds of years that the that the uh, the Pope and the Patriarch of Moscow, the Orthodox Patriarch of Moscow, met together. And, um, you know, the Pope had been hoping uh, had been saying that he was going to try to meet with Kirill this year. And, you know, just kind of trying to develop this relationship with the Orthodox Church. And obviously that has been um, stymied by the invasion uh, of, of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, but then this move of the Pope consecrating Russia and, um, and Ukraine to Mary basically p- puts the nail in the coffin of that relationship, wouldn't you say? You would think. I mean, they did just have another video conference last they week. They did. They did. After the consecration had been announced. They did, although the Pope was very... See, this is the thing is, um, you know, there are... Uh, look, there are uh, there are criticisms to be made of, um, of the Francis papacy, but um, on this front, uh, the Pope has been rather direct. I mean, it, during the context of that call, he was rather direct with Kirill about the immorality of the war, the injustice of the war, was he not? Sure. But my, my point was Kirill took the call, yeah. mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. You would put it this way. So the reason why JP the two um, said the word Russia sort of sotto voce and not in the plain text of the consecration in the 80s was because it was 
it was the advice given to him, and it was widely believed that to explicitly consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary would be viewed as an intolerable Roman imposition on the spiritual life of Russians by uh, the Russian Orthodox Church as well as by the communist government there and then. Um, and that this would, you know, be a, a hammer blow to any hopes of any kind of rapprochement, that it would set things back, it would make life harder for Catholics living there, all these kinds of things. Um, and I find it interesting that um, when when the Vatican announced that the Pope was going to do this consecration, and it was specifically going to be for Russia and Ukraine, that Kirill was still effectively willing to pick up the phone when the Pope called. I mean, it's a, it's a weird thing now where, you know, even prior to um, the the invasion, which began just over a month ago now, um, it, it was sort of getting to the point where the where the Pope had had rather warmer relations with the patriarchs of Constantinople and Moscow than they had with they, each other. the patriarchs had with, the, with right. each other, which is, you know, I thought, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, this is ridiculous. Why is the, you know, why is the Pope courting Constantinople and Moscow simultaneously? They, they are completely at loggerheads. They're out of communion. They're, you I know, think you're that's seeing a why. I think of the Pope the intended to be. But that's what well, I, I think saying, the Pope intended so to be a principle seeing, of unity in the life of the church. Exactly. The Pope was behaving as the central reference point of Episcopal unity for the bishops oh, of the world. Hey, look at that. Whoa. Sooner or later, everybody comes mm-hmm, home. Mm-hmm, um, anyway, so that was very interesting to see going on. It's interesting to me that the the consecration is taking place and Carol's still willing to pick up the phone. I, I'm not prepared to say that the theorized meeting between Francis and Carol later this year is off. I don't think it is. I I'm mean, not I saying it's definitely going to happen. I my predictions on this podcast. But, but I, I don't think this is... I, I think... Because here's the thing. So we're talking about the sort of wider ecumenical chessboard, which is like six-dimensional at this point, because you've got um, the, the Russian Greek Catholic Church in Russia. You have the, the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia. You have the Ukrainian Catholic Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine. You have the um, Orthodox Church of Ukraine. You have the um, Ukrainian Orthodox Church one of which is in communion with Moscow and sort of under its authority. The other one is not as headed by its own patriarch. In addition, you have the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia. Um, and all of these pieces are in flux. You know, you have the Russian Orthodox, apart from the the um, Orthodox Church of Ukraine um, or the Ukrainian, I can never, I, I always get well, the acronym. I, I don't know which one you're wanting to reference, but... The, uh, the the of the Moscow Patriarch. Oh, that's the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarch. Yeah, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow, which is autocephalous. Right. Okay. The non. And obviously, by the way, Ukrainian those are English sort of imposition. Those are just sort of English placeholder titles because I, I I don't know about the word order in Ukrainian. Obviously. Exactly. But anyway, my point is that the 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 Ukra- Oh God! No, I'm backwards again. Anyway, the Orthodox Church in Ukraine. Which is in communion oh, with the, the Moscow Ukrainian Patriarch. Is, stop it. Just stop it, or I'm never gonna get out of the sentence. Um has has had increasingly frosty, even severed relations and some and we've you know, our our Ukrainian correspondent has written about this, talking to priests of this church in Ukraine about removing reference to Kirill and the Moscow Patriarch from their liturgy, um, and how this is all going, and you've had uh um Kirill say that Priests and bishops who do this um, are putting themselves outside of communion with the Russian Orthodox Church, and this is unacceptable. But now you're even getting to the point where 
um, bishops of the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia. So not even like if you like satellite subsidiary churches right, in just, communion just with Russia. Ru- yeah. the, the name brand Russian Orthodox right. Church outside of Russia is doing the not same thing. Not a kind of, if you will, just allow me, if you will, not a sort of swatch derivative of the Russian Orthodox Church, but the real McCoy. I have too high a regard for the ecclesiology <laughs> of the Orthodox Church in Ukraine of the Moscow Patriarchate to make that debasing comparison, J.D., but you can be flip if you choose. Um, anyway, the, the we are now seeing the 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 Russian Orthodox Church become and Kirill in particular becoming so isolated um, in the in in sort of ecclesiastical affairs from other Orthodox churches and even from itself, from the Russian Orthodox Church itself, that I I wonder if the Pope you know says. You want to have a sit down? Like he won't just grab at that as, you know, it's the only person who's willing to talk to me anymore. I better go. You know, I, it could be very interesting to see how that develops. I just don't know um, that I'm ready to say that that's definitely off or that this consecration um, will will put the sort of final nail in the possibility of that. And more to the point, and you wrote about this this morning, and I thought it was well observed, is that there are a number of important um, C's vacant in the Catholic Church, or in churches of the Catholic Church, uh, churches in communion with Rome, and have been vacant for decades, right. out of sort of, if you like, ecumenical sensitivity in part, to a, the a, Russians. A Russian Catholic pointed out to me that uh, that it, that that it, that it is fair to say that largely they have been vacant out of ecumenical sensitivity to the Russians. Although there may be some other issues as well. I just wanted to, yeah, right. Right. largely. But for example, the Ukraine the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church has not had a patriarch. It's led by a major archbishop. And um, they have been asking for a patriarch for decades, and there hasn't been one because there has been the, um, at least in part, the sensitivity to, well, we will now have three patriarchs in Ukraine, and do we really want to, you know, stir that up even more? And you know, But at this point, I don't know that there's any reason That's not to. That's what I think. I, I similar- think that because, the, because of the dampering of the, uh, of the, uh, of the, relationship that the pope has been pursuing with kirill like and this act of spiritual authority over P- kirill's territory and people the place where he claims exclusive jurisdiction this act by the pope to say i can entrust this place which you over which you claim to have jurisdiction to the blessed virgin mary it's actually it's um it's uh it's what the kids call a baller it's a, play what the kids call a baller play it, i mean it's just um it's quite a flex as they might also say Indeed. Um, it, it's just a, it's an extraordinary sort of um exhibition of of papal primacy to be perfectly candid papal, papal spiritual authority and so um that exhibition effectively not in carol's front yard but over what he regards to be his whole sort of exclusive jurisdictional property is not well this is the thing is i've heard some people say oh well he's not really consecrating russia to or at least russia and ukraine and should, but let's but be honest it, in the mind ukraine. of kirill Kier- not just claims ukraine in kirill's own words he refers to russia and ukraine as a, a single christian entity. space that's right exactly with belarus yeah. as well um with belarus and estonia oh, I, I didn't know about estonia but okay i believe you i i, I think i Good. think uh, okay there is, I know there is I don't the, know anything I, about Estonia, except I think they beat, uh, oh no, it was North Macedonia that beat Italy in a, in a soccer we game. We may need to, we should start looking at Estonia just to, you know, get ahead of the game. <laughs> I think that's probably right. I, yeah. But I know there is the, I know the Russian Orthodox Church, properly speaking, is present in Estonia, and that I don't think there's an Estonian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarch. Okay. 
I could be wrong. I could be wrong about there not being one, but I know that the Russian Orthodox Church is present in so Estonia. So the Pope anyway. flexing, so to speak, by making this act of spiritual authority over the things which Kirill considers to be his own jurisdictional territory will, I think, put the uh, uh, you think that the meeting might still happen and maybe it will but it nevertheless it is it is a it, it is a demonstration that the holy see when it wishes to um can uh put aside its ecumenical concerns for something which it regards to be important and actually as an aside i think it's quite beautiful that the thing which the holy see says it regards to be important is a spiritual matter right not the sort of yeah. that, that it didn't begin by saying we're not going to worry about ecumenism because we want to appoint this bishop or whatever, but we're not going to worry about ecumenism because we want to entrust all these people to Mary's immaculate heart. That's beautiful. Having done it and having sort of crossed the the uh, the uh, the Ural the Ural River on this one, um, I think that's a river, is it not? I, I uh, having sort of crossed Wait. the river on this one, um, having done it. No, the Urals are a mountain. The Urals are both mountains and uh, and river. Yeah, a river. I was trying okay. to. Trying to uh, what I was trying to do was make an Eastern version uh, of a, of um, of a Rubicon. See what I was ah. doing there. Yeah. Uh, there is one. What's the What's the river Napoleon crossed to enter into Russia during his invasion? Oh, wait, I went to public school. Uh, so did I. <laughs> yeah, but that's a different thing. Um, having done it, having crossed the Ural or the European or the Russian Rubicon, if you prefer. The uh, the Pope is now in a position to recognize a patriarch, a Catholic patriarch in Kiev, to appoint a bishop to uh, an, an exarch to the to the Russian Catholic exarchate in Russia to do these things which we have held off on in the name of ecumenism and actually um, the Berezina JD. okay to cross the Berezina Napoleon crossed the Berezina River at Borisov in western Russia to join up with his Austrian ally Field Marshal Schwarzenberg. At Minsk, and of course, Minsk is in what country? Minsk is in Belarus, Poland. Exactly, Russia. No, Belarus, Ukraine. <laughs> Minsk is in Belarus. Okay, so um, ha- having having uh, having done that, you know, having done the first thing, the Pope is in is in a position to do these other things, and you know, it ju- it has led me to think about the nature of ecumenism, because um, this sort of practical, sort of real politic that says. We don't want to do these things in which we exercise our spiritual and governing authority, our governing authority over Catholics in these territories, because we recognize the legitimate jurisdiction of these people and we don't want to sort of claim our own jurisdiction in the same place or primacy of our jurisdiction or whatever. Um, I wonder if that kind of deference is actually the path to authentic ecclesial communion, which is the end of, 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 of ecumenism, is it not? It is the, the the end and purpose of ecumenism is authentic ecclesial communion, and authentic Ut unum sint. and authentic ecclesial communion comes comes um, through in with and through the Petrine office in with and through yes. the Roman papacy, and so there's no way around the stumbling block of uh, of the papacy when it comes to, to ecumenism. Now you can say sure, but um, our theology of the communion of churches says that the Pope ought to act in a different way with regard to Eastern Catholic churches than he does with regard to the Latin Catholic church, because um, he ought to have genuine respect for the, you know, for um, the synods of leadership in Eastern in, in Eastern churches and for the authority of the patriarchs of those churches. And he ought to behave much closer to fraternally than paternally. And indeed, you know, the Eastern code sort of recommends that. And certainly our documents on the thing recommended, but at the end of the day, um, there, the one, 
one cannot sort of avoid that there is an understanding of um, a Roman pontiff with universal jurisdiction as a condition of communion with the church. Is that not so? That is so. so. Um, and it's, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. Um, for for so long in the history of the church, the, the, the papacy was bullish about the assertion of its prerogatives. Um, some might say uh, undiplomatically so on occasion. Um, and now we have arrived in a, in a new era where um, it's sort of, there's a, if you like, a pontifical shyness to, to claim and assert too, too strongly the prerogatives of the Petrine office. Um, and I mean, you see this, it's not particular to Pope Francis by any stretch of the mission. You saw this with, with Benedict, um, you know, had a habit of dropping some titles from, uh, from the annuario and, you know sort of downplaying certain traditional articulations of the Petrine office, which, you know, in the end, the, <clears throat> you know, you say it's important in some instances, the Pope appeared to be behaving more fraternally than paternally with some leaders of, uh, of these churches. And that's true. But I mean, really how the Pope has to behave is uh, in the last supper, that he's the servant of the servants right. of God, that um, it, that is the fundamental ministry of the Petrine. It is, it is a service of communion. It is a service of leadership. It is a service of headship, um, which is a which is a hard thing to articulate or understand unless it is informed by a genuine Christian spirituality and ecclesiology, um, which really does understand leadership as a service and not as the exercise of power. Um, and you know that that is complicated and difficult. And it also means that, and this same sort of reticence has crept in. Uh, and this is how I think it's a mentality rather than a sort of, if you like, ecumenical gambit. Is is we've seen it also in um, in in the evangelization. This is something that JP two wrote a lot about. Um, also, the Second Vatican Council wrote about it. That there there is a sort of um, shyness in uh, which can creep into the church when dealing with other faith traditions um, in the announcement of the gospel and the idea that well we don't want to proselytize, do we? Um, it's like, well, no, we don't want to make converts, so to speak, but we do have to announce the gospel <laughs> to everyone that there is only one church. I mean, you know, setting aside the ecclesiological reality of, you know, the Eastern churches and things like that. There is only one church of God on earth and there is only one God and there is only one salvific reality, which is Christ. Um, and you know, there's there seems to be a sort of uh, occasional squeamishness about being being upfront about this reality. Yeah, that's right. There's much more that we could talk about that, but Ed, it is time now for the consecration of Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, to which you and I both intend to tune in. So we will have to talk more about ecumenism and all things Eastern uh, next week on the Pillar Podcast. Will we not? Uh, I'm sure we will. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and friend, Ed Condon. We'll be back. <laughs>